We're speaking with author and investigative journalist Jefferson Morley about his fascinating new biography, The Ghost, The Secret Life of CIA Spymaster James Jesus Angleton. In the fall of 63, Oswald apparently goes to Mexico City, and uh, the chief of station there, Wynne Scott, the subject of your previous biography, reports on the visit and requests the latest info on Oswald. Angleton's office deliberately sends misleading data back to Scott. Does that not raise questions of whether Angleton was actually manipulating Oswald's activities? It's very curious that uh, the top official in the CIA would be sending uh, a cable about a future presidential assassin that was completely erroneous and contradicted by information that he had in his office at the time. So I don't have a good explanation of why he was doing that. Angleton operated at very devious levels, and I, I, I didn't want to speculate about it. But yeah, you know, Oswald shows up in Mexico City. He talks to the Cubans. He talks to the Soviets. Angleton knows that all the diplomatic officials in those in those offices are presumed to be intelligence officers, and indeed most of them were. He knows that Oswald was arrested in New Orleans for fighting with the CIA-funded Cubans. In the FBI reports, the FBI said that he beat his wife. So when Angleton gets notified that Oswald's in Mexico City, he could have turned around and told Wynn Scott, look, this guy is an open leftist. He's working for the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, which had been listed as a subversive organization by the Justice Department. He beats his wife. He's gotten arrested. Now he showed up in Mexico City, and he's making contact with presumed Cuban and, and, and Russian intelligence agencies. And therefore, if you hear more about him, tell me about that, or whatever. He could have sent a very strong message. And instead, he sends a message saying, don't worry about this guy. His time in the Soviet Union had a maturing effect on him. <laughs> and so... Wynn Scott believes this, right? He has no reason to think that headquarters is, is deceiving him. So he says, you know, he, he makes various other requests. He's trying to find out more information about Oswald. Angleton didn't tell Wynn Scott. He could have turned around and told the FBI in, in Dallas and New Orleans. And one other thing that I point out in The Ghost, which is new and, and was not previously known, was Angleton received an FBI report in November 1963 saying that Oswald had returned from Mexico City and had gone to Dallas. So Angleton knew that Oswald was in Dallas a week before the assassination. That's pretty clear from the paper trail that we now have. That's another thing that is unexplained about his response to Lee Harvey Oswald. But what we know for sure is he had plenty of information, of sort of warning signs about Oswald, and he did not share them with anybody. To the contrary, he shared false information or erroneous information with his own colleagues about Oswald. So that's very clear that he did that. Now, the question is, was he doing that to conceal an operation? And I think that's possible. That could be. If there's some circumstantial evidence. I didn't write that because I'm not sure of that, and we don't know. But we do know that Angleton was watching Oswald very carefully for four years before JFK was killed. Well, I need to point out to our listeners, uh, Mr. Morley, that you have you have a great reputation for getting the story and telling it cleanly, and people respect your disinclination to speculate past what can be established. But I'd like you to allow me to speculate on what you've uncovered about Angleton's interest in Oswald. It has always struck people as preposterous that Oswald could defect, tell the embassy he's going to give military secrets to the Soviets, and then not be prosecuted upon his return to the U.S. 
Is it not most reasonable to assume that the accused assassin was a U.S. government agent on some level rather than the Marxist mixed-up murderous individual known to history? That's a, that's a very plausible conclusion to be drawn. You can do that. I mean, we don't have proof of that. Right. I would say the evidence is lacking, just as I would say the evidence does not support the mix-up Marxist little man who wanted to kill a big man. It doesn't support that impression either. That, that, that's not a very good description of, of who Oswald was or, or what his mentality or his politics were. I think one of the most interesting things that I learned in doing the book was Oswald was very pro-civil rights. And what's very unusual for a, not a college-educated, white, working-class man from the South. And Oswald had a spontaneous sympathy for civil rights and for blacks, which he acted on. You know, when he was arrested in New Orleans, the New Orleans courtroom was still seg- legally segregated. And Oswald showed up for his, for his trial. He went and sat with the black people as a, as a way of expressing sympathy and, and, and saying legal segregation was, was BS. He, he told George de Morinschild that the one, he thought Kennedy was kind of an ordinary politician, would say anything to get elected. But the one thing that he liked about Kennedy was that he was pro-civil rights. This idea that he would then turn around and go kill a pro-civil rights president because he's a leftist, it doesn't make any sense. So my view is we don't have a very good explanation of the assassination. And what you're talking about, that was Oswald being used in U.S. intelligence operations, that's a very plausible alternative. And so when we don't have a good explanation, I think we've got to look at all the alternatives. Well, in 1962, Angleton got involved in matters related to Cuba, which the government was was, uh, obsessed with. He developed a plan to remove Castro. It was less dramatic than the one the Joint Chiefs endorsed, which is called Operation Northwoods. Can you talk just a little bit about that plan? Because I think people tend to doubt that such a thing could have ever really been proposed. This is another thing that I think is new in the the Angleton biography. the, the extent to which Angleton was involved in Cuba policy during the Kennedy years. Angleton is always associated in, in, in popular accounts with his own hunt for a mole within the CIA, and, and more largely with the CIA's struggles with the KGB. Cuba has not really figured as part of Angleton's career, at least in the way it's been you know, recorded by history. And the ghost shows that Angleton was deeply involved in Cuba policy, um, first in being tasked with creating a intelligence service that would become the intelligence service of the, the pro-U.S. government that was expected to replace Castro when Castro was overthrown. A second thing that Angleton did was he was involved in plans to assassinate Castro, and he talked about these plans with Peter Wright and Bill Harvey, and so, you know, he was he was involved in Cuba policy at that level. And then in 1962 and 63, the Pentagon was proposing a little bit different solution to the Cuba problem. President Kennedy and Robert Kennedy did not want a full-blown invasion of Cuba. They had resisted that during the Bay of Pigs, and they resisted it during the Missile Crisis. The Pentagon did, and they said that the, the policy that Kennedy preferred to have the Cubans instigate a rebellion against Castro on their own was never going to work, and that the U.S. should create a pretext to invade Cuba. And so they came up with the plans that you mentioned, Operation Northwoods. And Northwoods was 
plans developed by the, the Joint Chiefs of Staff Planning Division. So this was happened at the highest level of the Pentagon. And the challenge was, how could they create a situation in which the U.S. would be justified in invading Cuba with U.S. armed forces, as opposed to relying on Cubans to overthrow Castro? And the solution, according to the, the Northwoods planners, was to create a pretext, what they called an engineered provocation. And this was what in, is sometimes called a false flag operation in intelligence lingo. And the idea was create a spectacular international incident in which the U.S. was the victim of some kind of attack or terrorism that the U.S. could then claim was a justification for the invasion of Cuba. And the Northwoods planners came up with at least a dozen different scenarios, a terror attack in Washington or Miami, a hijacking of an airplane, if the early NASA mission, John Glenn, one of the first men in space, if his spacecraft had crashed, they were going to say that the Cubans had interfered with communications and had brought the spaceship down, and that would be a justification for war. I mean, they were really thinking hard about how to do this. And so this was the preferred option, and this wasn't musing in their desk or talking at a bar. This was a set of policy proposals that were requested and approved by the Joint Chiefs of Staff in 1962 and in 1963. And what I add to that story, which has been known um, since 1997 when the Northwoods papers were declassified, what I can add to that story is Angleton was brought into Cuba policy shortly after that with the mission of assessing the Cuban target. And so he wrote a paper called Cuban Capabilities, which was circulated to the Joint Chiefs of Staff right after they approved of the Northwoods plan. And this was a very lucid, comprehensive study of just how Castro's security forces worked. And so Angleton was deeply involved in this. Now, was there a connection between Angleton's involvement and the Northwoods plan? We don't know that, but um, but Angleton was very involved in Cuba policy in mid-1963, and that involvement is important because in that memo, Angleton talks about, you know, how the Cubans launch their intelligence operations, how they acquire support, how they do propaganda and all that. And in the memo, he talks about the Cuban consulate in Mexico City as this key place for Cuban intelligence to operate from. So this is May 1963. Jim Angleton is thinking very closely about a very specific location, the Cuban consulate in Mexico City. And less than five months later, Lee Harvey Oswald, the man who he's been watching since 1959, walks into that consulate. And, of course, Angleton's office is immediately notified. So when Lee Harvey Oswald arrived at the Cuban consulate in 1963 for purposes that remain obscure, and we can talk about that whole incident. But when he arrived there, Jim Angleton was not clueless. He was not surprised. He was not baffled. He was very well prepared. He knew who Oswald was, and he knew why the Cuban consulate was important. And then six weeks later, President Kennedy was dead, allegedly killed by Lee Harvey Oswald. So that set of events, which is very enigmatic, it's very puzzling, is very clear. I mean, factually, that's all true. We go through these permutations trying, well, what could explain this? And that's when we develop theories to explain a very strange set of facts. But the facts are there. Now we need to figure out what's the best explanation of those facts. 
Well, I have to ask you about something that I found very puzzling in the ghost and kind of whapped upside the head by it was the revelation that after this visit to Mexico City by Oswald, Angleton launches a mole hunt down there looking for people with allegiance to other agencies. It's, to me, a very strange episode. How, what, what do you make of this? Yeah, it is a very strange episode because what I describe in The Ghost is, is a mole hunt. FBI had a source that was feeding them information, and Angleton thought that this source might be a double agent, that he was feeding them bad information. So what he did was he wanted to know if anybody in the Mexico City station was in contact with a foreign intelligence service or a police force. And so they sent a a group of interrogators to Mexico City, and they interviewed about 20 Mexican employees of the Mexico City station. And this is literally within a a week of Oswald's visit to the Cuban consulate and 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 the Soviet embassy. These people go down there, and they're looking for, is anybody talking to the KGB? And the first three guys who they interviewed, the very first three guys are the guys who man the surveillance outposts on the Cuban consulate and the Soviet embassy, the places that Oswald had visited 10 days before. Now, was that particular mole hunt connected to Oswald's visit? I mean, again, we don't have any proof of that, but the coincidence of the timing is at least noteworthy. And it shows you how much Angleton was interested in the Cuban consulate and the Soviet embassy in Mexico City. This was not something that was off of his mind. This was something that he cared very deeply about and was worried about the possibility of communist penetration. So then, when six weeks later, an alleged communist is arrested for allegedly killing the president, having passed through the place that there were great you know, counterintelligence concerns about, again, you got to wonder, what's going on? What explains that? It could be a total coincidence, and somebody could come along and say, look, there was no connection at all. Well, it would be interesting if somebody had recorded that in a memo after the assassination or something. We don't have anything like that. So we're still left to wonder, was there a connection between Oswald's visit in Mexico City and Angleton's mole hunt, which immediately followed afterwards? And i got to say, again, it's possible that there's a connection. Well, rather famously, these visits that Oswald made to the to the Cuban consulate and, and Russian embassy did not get recorded. There are no pictures in existence of Oswald making these visits. Wynne Scott reportedly did have pictures of Oswald down there and supposedly some audio tapes. When he passed away a few years after the assassination, who shows up down in Mexico City to take all of his evidence into custody but James Angleton, and the data then disappears. That's absolutely right. And, you know... Um, Wynne Scott had that, that Cuban consulate very carefully watched, and so they had, a, they had an impulse camera on the door that Oswald walked in and out of at least three times, and that camera was supposed to take a picture of whoever entered and whoever left. And two CIA officers did later say that Wynne Scott had showed them surveillance photos of Oswald, but no such photos have ever surfaced. So we also know that the CIA story that that Oswald's visits took place on the weekend was not true, that the camera was not working, that was not true either. So that surveillance was very tight. And that's one thing that Wynn Scott said in his memoir was, we did not miss Oswald visiting the Cubans, which was a lie that that the CIA had told the Warren Commission. 
that the, the CIA didn't know Oswald had been in touch with the Cubans until after the assassination. That wasn't true. And when Scott knew it wasn't true, and he said it wasn't true in his manuscript, and when he died, as you said, Angleton went down there, snatched the manuscript and, and all the material that was in his office. So I think there probably were recordings and perhaps photographs of Oswald in Winscott's possession, but if so, they are in CIA possession now or they were destroyed. We're speaking with author and investigative journalist Jefferson Morley about his fascinating new biography, The Ghost, The Secret Life of CIA Spymaster James Jesus Angleton. Well, the thing that James Angleton is perhaps best known to history for is his mole hunt in the CIA as head of counterintelligence. You note in the book that Angleton's old buddy, his OSS trainer, in fact, Kim Philby, rather notoriously turned out to have been a Soviet spy in the 60s and then showed up in Moscow. A lot of folks have attributed the psychic damage done to Angleton for his later actions, which led to his downfall. Can you talk a bit about all of this? This is a part of the Angleton story that is well-known and one which uh, certainly I came to believe in very much, that Kim Philby's betrayal of James Angleton was a huge psychological blow and a decisive and formative chapter in his CIA career after 1963 when, when Philby's betrayal became known to the world. Counterintelligence is a by its very nature, is a kind of paranoid profession, right? In intelligence, you're trying to steal the other guy's secrets. In counterintelligence, you're trying to prevent him from doing that to you, right? So it's the flip side of intelligence work, and it's very important. And this was part of Angleton's genius. I mean, he had this insight about the importance of counterintelligence work. Maybe he even exaggerated its importance, but he understood theoretically how important it was in the great game of espionage to be protecting yourself. The enemy is not going to tell you when he's trying to penetrate you. You have to, you know, read incomplete information, deceptive information. So it's a paranoid profession. Well, then on top of that, you have this personal reality that the man who taught you the counterintelligence profession, Kim Philby, was in fact a spy himself. So that made him even more paranoid. Another thing, which was the prodigious drinking that these guys did in the 50s and 60s, the heyday of the Three Martini Lunch, and Angleton was an alcoholic in the later part of his career. I don't even his friends don't deny that. And one of the symptoms of, of chronic alcoholism is paranoia. So he's in a paranoid profession. He's had a personal relationship which which has ended in betrayal, which made him more paranoid, and he's got a drinking problem, which added to that. So. All of those things together really shaped his life in the later part of his career and really, in some sense, drove him crazy and eventually caused his CIA colleagues to say, you know, his usefulness is over and he needs to leave the agency. And so eventually, CIA Director Bill Colby fires him for a whole bunch of reasons. But it was, I think, it's fair to say that a lot of his problems go back to the betrayal of Kim Philby. There's another part of Angleton's legacy that's, that's not insignificant, worthy of mention, I think. Uh, during his last years in power, Angleton sort of looks the other way while Israel obtains an atomic bomb. Yeah, this is another important part of the ghost, and I advance the story a little bit. It has been told before about how Israeli agents obtained a couple hundred kilos of fissile material from a nuclear processing plant in Pennsylvania 
and used it to build uh, their own atomic bomb. Israel had the technological know-how by the mid-1960s to build a bomb. What they didn't have was fissile material, and they apparently got it from this company in Pennsylvania between 1964 and 1968 when they finally had their first nuclear weapon. Engelson was the Israeli desk officer for the CIA at the time, so he had a responsibility for reporting on Israeli activities, both the development of the nuclear program in Israel and uh, the loss of fissile material in the United States. Those were both matters that were part of Angleton's formal job responsibilities. And as well, Angleton, because of his good friendships with, with Israelis, he was personal friends with six men who were witting to the secret Israel's secret nuclear program. And he reported, you know, basically none of that, as far as we know, to the CIA and obfuscated the path when people started asking questions about it later in the 1970s. And in fact, most of the CIA records on the, on the whole issue remain secret to this day. This looks to be Angleton proceeding by omission, not commission. His fingerprints do not appear on the diversion of fissile material, but it happened on his watch when he had responsibility for reporting such things. And there's no in indication that he reported anything of what he knew about the secret Israeli nuclear program. So that's part of his record now. And what I found was one additional piece of the story, which was the private conclusions of a man who had worked for Angleton for seven years, John Haddon, who had served first as station chief in Tel Aviv and then as an assistant to Angleton in Washington, but always with responsibility for uh, Israeli intelligence. And John Haddon, in retirement, wrote up a memo which he shared only with senior government officials with the proper clearances about how the Israelis had stolen this material and how, why he had come to that conclusion. Haddon is dead, but his son shared with me some of his private papers, and in the papers he explains why uh, the diversion took place. And he doesn't mention Angleton's name, but it's very clear that that's what he's talking about, and that's what he wanted to set straight. And John Haddon said, Angleton had no interest in that, and I knew better than to report anything because he wasn't going to do anything about it because he was so close to the Israelis. So that's a story that's out there, and, and I strengthened it a little bit and added some more detail by bringing forward the account of John Haddon. Well, all of what you've written about has taken years of digging, and of course there's a great deal more we still do not know. And I think a lot of people think that without a doubt there's going to be things of interest in the JFK assassination-related documents that are being held in the archives still. This has been in the news of late. Uh, they did not release what they were supposed to. I guess the question I would have is, what would you like to see released among those documents relative to Angleton and others? First of all, there was a, a release the other day which uh, uh, was welcome uh, about the surveillance of Oswald, um, and it's about how Oswald's name was put on a list of 300 Americans to have their mail opened. Um, this is before the assassination. So that list was called a watch list, and that list was compiled by Angleton's office. So when Oswald's name was put on there, we can be sure that that had Angleton's approval. And this happened well before the Kennedy assassination. So that's an indication of how interested they were in him. They, they put him on the list. They, they had some reason to put him on the list. Then they took him off the list and then they put him back on the list. So, you know, they were thinking about this guy, and they were making decisions accordingly. So we've already got a little piece of, of information from the, from the latest releases about that. 
But there is other Engleton material that has not been released. Most notably, Engleton gave a closed-door testimony to the church committee in 1975, talked to them for two or three hours. It's a 155-page transcript, which has not been released yet. So that's very telling, that I think that it hasn't been released yet, and that's the kind of thing that I'm looking to see be released in the coming months. Well, as you mentioned, he was quite persuasive on an individual level. I note that in retirement, he was still working with journalists. Uh, you can see on the Internet, some, there's a BBC special where he's criticizing CIA leadership, the people that fired him, hints, at, hints darkly at Soviet plots. He worked with a man named Edward Epstein to float this, the Soviets ran Oswald theory. I guess up to the end, he was still doing intelligence work. Talk about conspiracy theorists. He was the king of them. He had a conspiracy <laughs> theory for, for everything. He spun a lot of KGB conspiracy theories to Ed Epstein and other people, and these theories were, they were persuasive to some people. But what's interesting is, you know, the point of a central intelligence agency is to develop usable intelligence for the government, right? I mean, it's almost self-evident. So if Angleton thought that there had been a conspiracy of a hostile foreign intelligence service to kill the president of the United States... <laughs> It was his duty, it was his job to write those concerns down and investigate them. So Engleton served as counterintelligence for 11 years after Kennedy's assassination. And if you go to look for it, so what did, what did the counterintelligence staff prepare in terms of memoranda, analysis, reports? What kind of evidence did they collect? What did they, how did they assess this theory? All that. There is literally nothing there. Doug. There's nothing there. He did not write down a single one of these theories. He did not investigate them. So when I hear conspiracy theories like that, that have no evidence, that have no analysis behind them, they're simply not credible. And so I dismiss Angleton's KGB conspiracy theory because it's not documented. He never documented it. Now, other people came along and said, well, maybe this is true and maybe that, but the point is, it was his job to document. It's not some journalist's job sure. to say whether that happened or not. And he didn't do it. So that, to me, suggests that he was not operating in good faith around questions of the JFK conspiracy. Because if he did believe what he said, he would have done something, and he didn't. So I don't think he was operating in good faith when, when he spun JFK conspiracy theories. I think his JFK conspiracy theories like 99% of the JFK conspiracy theories out there, is useless, and there's no need to pay attention to it. I guess my final question is, how would you summarize Angleton's legacy? I want to be fair. His insight about the importance of counterintelligence work is undeniable. It is also undeniable that the CIA at that time underestimated the KGB. I talked to one CIA veteran who said something very interesting to me. He said the KGB was probably the, the better intelligence service, more professionally run, uh, more effective, but they were working for a government that was less strong than the CIA. The CIA was the inferior intelligence service, but it, it was working for a superior government, a government that was stronger, had more legitimacy, and would last longer. The KGB was a strong intelligence service, but they were working for a weak state, the communist state, which was run on repression and did not have the ability to sustain itself. So Angleton had real insights into the KGB and the, and the Cold War power struggle. That's for sure. But he operated with total secrecy, no accountability. 
he made lots of mistakes. And because he was so secret and so powerful, he was never held accountable. And so he had this vast and sometimes malign influence on U.S. policy in many different areas that nobody in the government even knew about it. I think that after Engelson was fired, people in the CIA that themselves were extremely worried, like, what has this guy been doing in our name? And we don't have answers to that, especially around the JFK story. We don't have a good explanation of Angleton's, what he was doing with Oswald. What was the nature of that interest? Was he manipulating Oswald? I mean, based on what we now know, that's an extremely fair question to ask. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's, it, if you look at the record, it's, it's like, what the hell was going on here? And my bottom line is, Angleton was a brilliant guy. He was deceptive. He was ambitious. And he may have been quite sinister, and we're left to grapple with that possibility and the hope that maybe we'll get some more insight into that from further declassification. The book is titled The Ghost, The Secret Life of CIA Spymaster James Angleton. We've been speaking with its author, Jefferson Morley. This is a fascinating read. I want to assure listeners that we, we've not done it justice in a brief chat like this. There's, there's so many fascinating subplots in it. You really suggest you go out and get the book. And But before you go, Jeff, can you mention some of your websites, including JFK Facts? I know you put a lot of work into, into those, and, and it's a repository of some great, um, great sources of data. JFK Facts is a blog that I've run for five years about the JFK assassination, and the idea is to live up to the name, uh, which is to study the assassination from a factual basis, assess what are true facts, what are real facts, eliminate bad information, bad stories, bad sources, so that we can, you know, focus and understand this question a little bit better and also address it in a little more dispassionate way. We see the intense interest in, you know, new JFK files and the press comes running and everybody wants to know, is there smoking gun and all that? Well, what's that about? That's about, you know, this incident still fascinates us and disturbs us and people still want to know, they still want a better explanation of what we have. So, at JFK Facts, I try and, you know, stay on the cutting edge of what's new, what's reliable, and what can we, what can we say. So it's a good place for people to keep up with the story of the JFK Files uh, releases. I'm also the Washington correspondent for Alternet, which is a kind of liberal left uh, progressive news site, and I write about all sorts of national security and political issues there. That's where I do my daily journalism while I'm writing my books. The Ghost, its companion, Our Man in Mexico, my two CIA books. Well, Jefferson Morley, we suggest that you keep up the great work. Uh, we're, we're great admirers of what you've done. Thanks so much. Thank you, Doug. All right. That's it for the program, which was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.